It was early Sunday morning, July 10th, 2016, and Mark Mueller was startled by the sound of gunfire outside his house in the Bloomingdale neighborhood of Washington, D.C. I immediately looked back at the clock because I figured somebody's going to ask me when, when I heard these shots, and it was 419. So I went running down and ran outside to the corner of Flagler and W, where the cops were arriving and paramedics were already showing up. Mueller described a gruesome scene. A young man had been shot and was sprawled out on the street, fighting for his life. His facial expression was just pure shock. He looked at me, but that was the look of, like, what's going on? The victim was Seth Rich, a 27-year-old from Omaha who had been working at the Democratic National Committee. He was rushed to a nearby hospital and pronounced dead at 5.57 a.m., earning brief attention on the local newscasts. Now to our top story, an Omaha family is grieving tonight after their son was shot and killed in Washington, D.C. MPD is looking into the possibility that Rich's murder is connected to other recent robberies in this still trying to figure out who murdered Democratic National Committee staffer Seth Rich in the Bloomingdale neighborhood. There were no witnesses to the crime. Three years later, not a single suspect has been named. Nor has there ever been a motive established, though authorities continue to say that it was most likely an attempted robbery, tragically botched. And yet the death of Seth Rich has taken on a life of its own. It spawned bizarre and outlandish conspiracy theories. So what really happened to Seth Rich? Well, we know Hillary likes to kill people. We know she's got a long history of having her henchmen do it. Ladies and gentlemen, Seth Rich was assassinated for political reasons. This is probably the biggest assassination story since JFK. I'm texting with Steve Bannon, and Bannon writes back, the kid that got shot, huge story. It was a contract kill, obviously. It might expose the single biggest fraud, lies, perpetrated on the American people. I'm Michael Isikoff. Welcome to Yahoo News' Conspiracy Land the untold story of Seth Rich, a special six-part podcast brought to you by Skullduggery. I've been an investigative journalist in Washington for several decades now, and I was heavily involved in reporting on the role that Russia played interfering in the 2016 presidential election, the leaking of DNC emails to WikiLeaks, the creation of fake Twitter accounts, and the manipulation of social media, the attempts to recruit or co-op members of the Trump campaign, But as I did so, I kept hearing in the background, much of it coming from Trump allies, how Seth Rich's death and not Russian meddling was the real story of what happened during the election. I've always been drawn to conspiracy theories like this, not because I believe in them. In fact, almost all of the big ones I've studied fall apart under close scrutiny, but because they are a window into the dark corners of our political soul. The belief in malevolent powers pulling the strings, the conviction that your political rivals will go to any lengths to achieve their aims and cover up their crimes, and the idea that the mainstream media will deliberately hide the truth from the American people. All of these are reflected in which conspiracy theories we choose to believe in and which ones get traction. So it has been with the case of Seth Rich. 
His murder was only one out of 135 in the District of Columbia in 2016, and yet no conspiracy from that year had more legs and was arguably more cruel than the stories about this real-life tragedy. The thing that was really astonishing to me about the Seth Rich story is how many people chose to involve themselves in it from every sort of level of society, from the zealist conspiracy entrepreneurs who nobody knows who they are, just guys shouting into YouTube videos and periscopes, all the way up to, as far as we know, perhaps the White House. It was a true mystery. We do not know who killed Seth Rich. And those two things combined, the elements of political suspicion and the genuine, honest-to-God, real-life, unsolved crime, drew so many people in. Much of what has been circulated about Seth Rich's life and his violent death is a lie, provably so. But nothing has stopped these falsehoods from flourishing in a netherworld of internet cranksters and trolls, and then getting amplified by alt-right websites and conservative cable news stars. Most startling of all, we discovered, was a hidden hand, thousands of miles away, fanning the flames. How does all this happen? Why do these stories take root? You'll hear from some of the purveyors of these bogus conspiracy theories as we try to get inside their heads. You'll think I'm nuts. I'm a believer in the deep state. I believe there are elements in the U.S. government, probably in the intel bureaucracy or the law enforcement bureaucracy. Where was he? And why don't we have the computer? And why isn't this murder solved? The speculation around it is interesting, and I think that it's fair play to discuss it. Just talking about it doesn't mean that you're, you know, frothing at the mouth with conspiracy theories. Why are they covering everything up? Why is no one talking about this? Why will no one in the mainstream media touch this? For the first time, you'll hear from the prosecutor who uncovered how these stories began. There were too many conspiracy theories that were all the same. I was seeing it in multiple places, and I, I really don't believe in coincidences. We'll also talk to some of Seth's friends and neighbors who have been targeted and harassed by internet bullies. And his parents, who have watched painfully as their son's death has been twisted and exploited. I wish they had the chance to experience the hell we have gone through. Because this is worse than losing my son the first time. This is like losing him all over again. This is episode one, The Last Days of Seth Rich. What, what can I get you to do? On the evening of July 8th, 2016, Seth Rich strolled into Lou's City Bar in Washington, D.C.'s Columbia Heights neighborhood, settled into his usual seat, and was quickly served his favorite drink, a Bell's Two-Hearted Ale. Rich was a regular here. A cheerful young man, 5'10", 180 pounds, with a close-cropped beard and a bit of a beer paunch, he would come in three or four times a week, sometimes sitting for hours, nursing his beer, shooting the breeze. There wasn't an employee, there wasn't any one of our regulars that didn't know Seth. I mean, it was very cheersy. He'd walk in and everyone would go, hey, and you know, pour him a beer and sit down. 
That's a part-time bartender at Lou's we know as Evan. As Evan recalls it, on this Friday night, Seth was facing a tough choice. He had been working for the Democratic National Committee, helping to develop a computer software program to identify potential voters for the fall election. But he had just been offered a new job, to work on voter turnout for Hillary Clinton's campaign in Brooklyn. It was a great opportunity, but Seth was torn. This was a looming decision. He seemed genuinely conflicted, and he needed to make up his mind and either drop everything from D.C. and move to New York or stay in D.C. and tough it out. Just a few hours earlier, he had been going over the pros and cons with his parents, Joel and Mary Rich, who were back home in Omaha. What I had told him was, this is a once-in-a-lifetime. You have to go to with the, with the campaign if that's what you're going to do. He and his girlfriend had some things to figure out. He was trying to figure out how to afford it and things like that. And there were still questions that he needed answers to that he didn't have. I guess uh, there's an email that he had started to write. We think it was the start of a reply accepting the job. To better understand who Seth was, we went to Nebraska to talk to those who knew him best, his parents and his friends. It's about a half an hour west of downtown Omaha, where the riches raised Seth and his older brother Aaron, an area that used to be distinct from the city, but now with growth, the suburbs outnumber the cornfields. We were actually on the same soccer team together. That's Corey Lynch, one of Seth's friends from the fifth grade. He was extremely loyal. Um, I think if there was a friend where I ever felt like I was in a pinch, I knew I could call him and coincidentally also knew that he would pick up. In these conversations, a couple of things stood out. The first is, contrary to the claims in the later conspiracies, there was nothing remotely devious about Seth Rich. In fact, he was, from all accounts, sunny and even a little goofy at times. He was a bit of a ham in the sense of he was willing to put, throw himself under the bus so that everyone else could feel comfortable and be laughing at something together. He was a silly guy for sure, and I'm sure everyone would tell you that. Allison Steele was Seth's girlfriend when they were students at Creighton University. One time when Steele, who suffers from cystic fibrosis, was hospitalized. Seth came dressed up as a polar bear to my hospital room and just with zero zero regard for anybody else. He didn't care if it was going to bother anyone else. He just wanted to make me laugh, make me smile. The other thing everyone remembers is that he was consumed with politics. Even in high school, this, this kid used to watch CNN and all the political channels. And how earnest he was about it. This is a good story, actually. I had never voted. And he says, I don't care who you vote for, but you have to vote for someone. You don't even have to tell me who you vote for, but you have to vote. The only time I've ever voted is when I was dating Seth. My name's Aaron French. I also went to high school with Seth, like Corey. Uh, met him probably first day of freshman year. He and I worked on the Senate campaign of Ben Nelson in 2006 together. Kind of canvassers, phone bankers, and for both of us it was our first political job. Did he have ambitions in politics? I think at that point he absolutely did. Yeah, he, I think this was kind of the kind of like bravado and, and boasting of a, of a young kid. He, you know, was confident that he was going to be in Congress or in the Senate. He, he was dreaming big. 
Seth moved to Washington after graduating from Creighton and got a job as a data programmer with a prestigious polling firm. Then, in 2014, he landed a position with the Democratic National Committee, where his infectious enthusiasm caught the attention of his bosses. Did you know Seth Rich? Of course I did. He worked in the division that I supervised, voting rights, uh, voter protection. Donna Brazil, a veteran Democratic Party operative, was at this time the vice chair of the DNC. So the specific job that he had was what? Uh, Seth's job was to work with the legal staff and the technology staff to ensure that we had a mechanism by which we can check people's voter registration status. So you can go online, click, I will vote, and you are able to identify whether or not you're registered as well as you know, where you might find your polling place if it was close to election day. I, I've never encountered someone so genuine in, in, in his belief that uh, every American should be able to participate in that political process. Seth Rich with the DNC. I think several of you have spoken about provisional ballots and rejected ballots. Here he is at an election conference in 2015, one of the few times Seth's voice was recorded in a public setting. How do we get better access to data that tells us why ballots are rejected, why ballots are cast as provisional so that we can analyze that and then develop better training guides. Voting rights was a subject that Seth talked about all the time, even when he went out for a beer with coworkers from the DNC like Pablo Manriquez. You guys socialized, you went out drinking. We were, we were kind of guys that like sit at the bar and just kind of solve the world's problems as it were, like, you know, talk, uh, you know, talk shop, talk about sports, talk about whatever, not so much sports, but more politics. We were, we were really uh, obsessed with politics at the time. His work toward voter expansion was something that he was fired up about. Making sure people could vote was an issue that fired him up even more than who he thought the party's nominee should be. Later, it would be claimed repeatedly with zero evidence that Seth was a disgruntled Bernie Sanders supporter. But we talked to a number of his friends who all told us the same thing as Manriquez. No one could ever remember Seth expressing a preference for either candidate. The Seth Rich I knew wasn't focused on Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton in his, you know, any more than in as much as it didn't relate to his job of expanding the vote, he was a patriotic guy who just really wanted to make sure that people could vote. In a rare interview, we spoke with Seth's brother, Aaron Rich. You'll hear more from him later, but when I asked him about Seth's passion for politics, he told us... He, he loved it. You know, he had the chance to make the difference he wanted to make. Let everyone's voice be heard. What memories stick out in your mind when you think about your brother? I mean, the, the, the one that comes to mind the most is the, you know, when I went to visit him in D.C. and how proud he was for him to be the one to buy dinner and drinks for us because he was just feeling that happy that he, he was doing something he loved and, you know, had you know, started fulfilling his dream. July 4th was, oh my gosh, it was huge to him. Bigger than his birthday, it was the thing. That summer, Seth had gotten a coveted invitation to the Obama White House 4th of July celebration to watch the fireworks. His big concern was, what do I wear? Can you describe that outfit, Mary? Stars and striped shoes, stars and striped socks, stars pants, and a shirt with both stars and stripes, and sunglasses with stars and stripes. And he actually added a formal bow tie with stars and stripes. 
for the uh, White House party. Unfortunately, it rained. So it got canceled. So he never got to go to the White House. He never got to go to the White House. So he was kind of bummed about that. So the last picture we have of him is walking with the bow tie down that was taken on 4th of July. Early on the morning of July 10th, while still grappling about the job offer from the Clinton campaign, Seth was headed home after another night at Lou's. One of my bartenders who was there that night called me. Joe Capone was then the manager of Lou's City Bar. Been drinking a little too much, yeah. He had he had more than his usual that night, I believe, is what I was told. He was there until about one-ish. They told me that he was offered a ride home, um, that he... That he was a little bit upset that night. Seth turned the offer down and decided to walk instead. It was a long walk, about two miles to the Bloomingdale neighborhood where he lived, and Seth, for reasons that are still unclear, took his time making his way home, spending most of the next three hours talking on his cell phone. We reviewed his phone records for that morning. There's one at 1.21 a.m., a 12-minute call to an old fraternity brother at Creighton. At 2.05, an 89-minute call to Kelsey Mulka, his girlfriend who was at her parents' house in Michigan. That call got interrupted. At 3.37, he was back on the phone with Kelsey, this time for nearly 43 minutes. It was the last call he would ever make. Just before 4.19, Seth was across the street from a small convenience store, just a block and a half from the group house where he lived. Two men approached. I gotta go, he told Kelsey. And then, a scuffle. What we learned from Kelsey, he was talking to her. She heard some noise on the phone. She said, are you okay, are you home? He says, yeah, I'm home. And then it's, I have to call you back. We walked to the corner of Flagler and W Street with Seth's neighbor, Mark Mueller, while he described what he saw that morning. It's about 30 blocks north of the Capitol. But when you see him, he's... He's literally in, in the walk yep, way pretty here. much right smack in the middle. 10, 15 feet away. Yeah. He was with his stomach down, his knees on the ground, so his back hips were up in the air, and his arms were in front of him, you know, like what crab claws would be, wow. and you could see his fingers moving. Seth was rushed by ambulance to the Washington Hospital Center, less than a mile away. Joel and Mary were told Seth had put up a fight. He had bruising on his face, he had bruising on his knuckles, and he had bruising on his knees. So we know he struggled. From what we've heard from the detectives, he ended up shot twice in the back. They said he was talking to the officers when they first got there. He was maybe stable when he got to the hospital, and then things went bad. We saw a copy of his death certificate. It said, cause of death, gunshot wounds of torso. Manner of death, homicide. The next day, the Washington Police Department had a press conference. We're also here to talk, to ask for your assistance in the uh, murder from yesterday, early morning hours, um, in the 2100 block of Flagler Place Northwest. Officers uh, monitored the sound of gunshots, responded into that area. The police had little to go on. 
There was some grainy video from the convenience store camera across the street, but all it showed were the legs of two suspects where the confrontation took place. And there was a witness who saw two young males running in a westerly direction after the shooting. This is an active investigation. We're in the early stages, but we're asking for the public's assistance. The cops believed this was a robbery gone bad. We are looking into uh, some robberies that have occurred in that area. We will match the lookouts uh, up to see if that had anything to do with this murder. So we are looking into that. That summer, there had been a rash of armed robberies in the Bloomingdale neighborhood where Seth was shot, seven of them in the six weeks prior to his shooting. Local residents were up in arms. Here's Mark Mueller again. We've had so many holdups on the same corner with the same method of holdup where two guys grab the person, they hold a gun to the head, while one person takes the phone and makes the owner of the phone go into the apps and unarm anything that could be traced. Now this happened time and time and time and time again. Scott Roberts runs the listserv for the Bloomingdale neighborhood. He read us some of the crime alerts he had posted in the weeks before Seth's death. Incidents all within blocks of each other. Friday, June the 24th, MPD, robbery hold of a gun at 207 hours at 1st and S Street Northwest. MPD, robbery gun at 1153 hours on the 2000 block of Flagler Place, and that's dated Monday, June, June 13th. June 16th, MPD, robbery gun at 2058 hours at 1st and Adams Street Northwest. By late June, residents were demanding increased police presence. We've had meetings with the police, screaming at the police in our civic association meetings, begging for help. The protests made the local news. The police chief touting robberies across the district down about 20%, but the reality is that in this northwest neighborhood in Bloomingdale, robberies are up 80%. And this robbery that... And now here is your entry for Sunday, July 10th. Oh, okay. Sunday, July 10th of 2016, shooting at Flagler and W Street Northwest last night at 4.19 a.m. No arrests. Update from a neighbor, victim has died. All this activity explains why the D.C. police was quick to conclude Rich was likely the victim of one of the bands of armed robbers running loose in the neighborhood. But there were puzzling aspects from the scene. His billfold with his credit cards and his cell phone were still in his pocket. A small gold Hebrew high pendant was still around his neck. If this was a robbery, why was nothing taken? It's a question that has hung over the case ever since, but it was explainable, the cops believed, by the likelihood that when Seth resisted, his assailants panicked, shot him, and then fled. I will tell you, I have seen so many robberies gone bad that result in deadly violence when a victim is running away and nothing was taken from the victim. Glenn Kirshner spent more than 20 years as a homicide prosecutor in Washington, D.C. until he retired in 2018. He didn't work directly on the Seth Rich case, but he knew about it in the office and says the circumstances were not that unusual. You're a young man with a gun. You're going to try to steal somebody's wallet, cell phone, iPad, whatever the victim happens to be carrying. You pull the gun. You say the time-tested phrase in D.C. is, you know what time it is. And often victims react not by being compliant and taking their wallet out and turning it over. They run, they lash out, they do any number of things, and that inspires the impulsive robber 
to pull triggers. And once he pulls the trigger, he flees without taking the time to rummage through the victim's pocket. If I had a dime for every time I've seen that over the 22 years I've been prosecuting murder cases in D.C., you know, I I would be a little bit wealthier. When it came time to investigate Seth Rich's murder, there was one obvious candidate for the job. Deborah Sines. As far as I can tell, they gave you all the tough cases. I sure had my fair share. Until she retired last year, Sines was something of a legend in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington. A gruff, fearless prosecutor who had handled some of the most grisly murders in the city over the last couple of decades. She was put in charge of the Rich case, and she's talking publicly about it here for the first time. Once I looked at the video surveillance cameras, and once I figured out what Seth's route was from Columbia Heights down to where he lived, once I saw what the ballistics were and weren't, I knew this would be a hard case. Was he able to say anything to those um, emergency workers that came to the scene pretty quickly? He could say some words. Some some were very hard for him to um, say. He was very drunk. Like the police, Sines was convinced the answer to identifying Seth's killers was to be found in those rash of robberies, a crime spree which she says was likely committed by drug-dealing residents in the neighborhood. In particular, three housing complexes that um, I knew had some very dangerous people in them. What we needed was good drug information to catch these guys. And in this case, signs and the cops didn't have it. Police are out in the neighborhood tonight. They're passing out these flyers, the flyers offering a $25,000 reward. They need some help in this one. So if you know something, give police a call. Doreen, back to you. We flew our son home. I, uh, I have always met my son at the airport when he's come home, and he's always received a hug and kiss, and that is exactly how I was going to meet my son for his last time coming home. When's the first indication you got that people were going to try and make something more out of this? Well, (laughs) we got a lot of calls right at first uh, on Monday from reporters, and they were asking, you know, do you think it had anything to do with him working at the DNC? No. You know, I don't... It didn't, and it doesn't. So he was shot on a Sunday. I think the first thing showed up on Facebook or Twitter the next Saturday. That quick. Actually, it was even quicker than that. And how it happened was far more calculated than anybody could have imagined. Three days after Seth's murder, an article appeared on an obscure website called whatdoesitmean.com. So whatdoesitmean.com is a conspiracy site that claims to be run by an ancient order of nuns called the Sisters of Sorcha Fall. 
Journalist Anna Merlin dissected the Seth Rich case in a new book called Republic of Lies, American Conspiracy Theorists and Their Surprising Rise to Power. She was one of the first to pick up on this strange item. So on July 13th, WhatDoesItMean.com reported Seth Rich was on his way to the FBI to testify against Hillary Clinton. Even though it was four in the morning. Even though it was four in the morning, the site also went on to claim that actually the people who he thought were FBI agents were really hired killers, hired by the Clintons. Wild as it sounds, the very first seed of Seth Rich conspiracies had been planted, and it raised some tantalizing questions. Where was this coming from, and who was really behind it? A secret order of nuns? Or was it a far more sophisticated operation? The item from WhatDoesItMean.com got scarcely any attention at the time, but it started percolating on sites like 4chan and Reddit, where outrageous items are the currency and are often posted anonymously. And it soon got the attention of a character who's anything but anonymous. Welcome to the Stone Cold Truth. We're talking about Roger Stone, a self-styled dirty trickster and Donald Trump's longtime political advisor. On August 9th at 12.37 a.m., Stone tweeted a picture of Seth, describing him as another dead body in the Clintons' wake. Coincidence, wrote Stone? I think not. As you'll hear in later episodes, Stone would become obsessed with the Rich case. In the weeks and months to come, he and others would recklessly portray Seth as a thief and a leaker and the victim of a dark political murder plot. I was having a really hard time processing it all. Debbie Flax was an old friend of Seth's from grade school. She was so upset about what was happening to his reputation, she wrote a song, a remembrance of the other Seth, the goofball kid, the political idealist, the gentle soul from Omaha. I was thinking about Seth and everything that had happened, and I finished the song in two days and was just so filled with that confusion and that emotion and that anger that something like this could happen to to someone who was such a good person that had just spilled it all in into the song. He was a person with a family. He's not just some name that's spiraling conspiracy. He, he was someone's son. Fly away, fly away. The title of the song is Fly Away. We need to let him go. We need to remember, but we need to be able to, to let him go in peace. But there were many more who were determined not to let him go. Next on Yahoo News' Conspiracy Land, Julian Assange and WikiLeaks hijacked the story of Seth Rich's death. We have to understand 
uh, how high the stakes are uh, in the United States and that our sources, you know, our sources face serious risks. A Kremlin disinformation campaign swings into high gear. Hillary Clinton internet. And the prosecutor discovers a smoking gun. And then I thought, oh my God, this is over my pay grade. And, and then I got very paranoid. That's episode two, The Russia Connection. Thanks for listening to this first episode of Yahoo News' Conspiracy Land. We hope you're intrigued enough to stick around for the next five. We need to give a couple of shout-outs here. First, to my Yahoo News colleague Alexander Nazarian, who thought investigating the conspiracies around Seth Rich's murder would be a good idea for a podcast. Thanks also to my Yahoo News colleagues Charity Elder, Dan Clydman, and Mark Seaman for their helpful ideas as well as to the folks from Long Story Short Media for their invaluable help in producing this podcast. Yahoo News' Conspiracyland is brought to you by Skullduggery, a weekly podcast that I host with Yahoo Editor-in-Chief Dan Clydman. In each episode, we dissect the latest revelations and controversies surrounding the Trump administration, and we interview key newsmakers, including some of the president's fiercest critics, as well as his most stalwart defenders. If you're enjoying this series, subscribe to Skullduggery and Yahoo News' Conspiracy Land to listen to all our episodes and leave a review.